Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Doug Bandow discusses foreign policy in a free society. Jeff Myron explodes the fallacy of small government interventions. Michael Clemens explores the economics of immigration. Cato's Tim Lynch details the flaws of our criminal justice system. And historian Rob McDonald shows how collectivism nearly destroyed America. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As many students are going back to school this fall, uh, many states have already adopted, some in full, some in part, and some not yet, and some trying to backtrack on this uh, idea known as the Common Core, which is uh, essentially a, a curriculum guide that is, to hear it told by its advocates, totally voluntary, uh, something that states may or may not adopt uh, perhaps in part, perhaps in whole. We're going to talk about that a little bit with Emmett McGrordy, a senior fellow at American Principles Project at the Division APP Education, and Neil McCluskey, associate director at the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. He is also author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, which you can get a copy of at Cato.org. Gentlemen, welcome. All right. Thank you. So let's uh, just start broadly speaking. Uh, I know a lot of parents are probably hearing about this idea called the Common Core, and I think intuitively it probably makes sense to a lot of people the idea that there be a sort of standardized guide of what kinds of uh, education just ought to be provided to young people in America. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, it is sort of intuitive if you think, and the way it's often presented to people is this way, if you think that every child should be uh, asked to reach high, rigorous standards and you shouldn't be asked to hit lower standards just because you live in Mississippi versus Massachusetts, if you look at it in that very simplistic way, yeah, that might make intuitive sense. Uh, but then you have to delve into what this actually means. And the fact of the matter is, first of all, that all kids are different. So it doesn't make sense to say they should all do the exact same thing at the exact same time. The reality is different communities and different states are all different, too. Mississippi is not the same place as Massachusetts. Then you realize that this doesn't make sense. Then you got to get into the politics of education standards. And the fact of the matter is what we've seen in state after state after state is efforts to set standardized state curricula their state standards, to make it high, to have tough assessments, to make sure kids are actually meeting those standards. And what we've seen in almost every state is they really set very low standards or have very easy tests, or they drop down to low standards and easy tests once they find that kids aren't doing well. And the reason for this is, one, actually a lot of parents don't like poor scores, but even more importantly, Teachers unions, administrators associations, the groups that represent all those people you'd want to hold accountable, they don't want to be held accountable because they're normal, rational human beings. And so they tend to gut these things. I think that that's correct. And, and what's more, you look at how the Common Core was developed, the people, the parents especially, were really cut out of the process. This, this was a, a top-down effort. So the the product kind of reflects that in, in that it's it's a – product that is not something that most parents would want for their children. Okay, so uh, that raises the issue. Why do why have so many states decided to, to sign on? Well, this, this is a project of two private associations, National Government Association and Council of Chief State School Officers. 
And they got the states to adopt it by essentially prevailing upon the federal government to push this through the stimulus bill. So states had to sign on in order to get a certain chunk of stimulus money. Then there were a couple of catches, not the least of which is the states essentially had to commit to the standards and the the federally financed assessments, that standardized test aligned with the standards. States had to commit to those before the product were developed. And the promise of those standards uh, was, was never fulfilled in terms of their quality. Okay. So quality uh, is an issue, but why not have the this, this standards to begin with, Neil? Well, because one is we know uh, very clearly, I think, if you look at the history of efforts to standardize education in this country, that it doesn't work, that any effort to make it high and rigorous fails. More fundamental than that is the fact that all kids are different. They have different talents. They learn things at different rates. And we're moving in the exact opposite direction of where we need to go if we say let's have one national standard. What we need to do is personalize education. That means we need to attach money to kids, give educators the freedom to try different things, specialize in the needs of spe- uh, specific groups of kids, and tailor education to their unique needs. In other words, we need school choice. We need freedom in education, not some federally coerced standard for everyone. Yeah, you know, this got a big boost, the um, or at least a big spark to start this effort uh, from No Child Left Behind. And the mantra of No Child Left Behind is we need accountability, we need accountability, we need accountability. Now, problem was, I never finished the sentence, the, the issue should be accountability to whom. And, and No Child Left Behind, Common Core, is, is really kind of a top-down effort whereby accountability runs to the federal government. And now the federal government and associations, we want it running the other way. That's the, the, the heart of the American exper- experiment is that accountability should be running down to the citizen. That's where government should be accountable to. Do we have a sense of how uh, state implementations of the Common Core have gone and what sort of the, the just the just the roadblocks of every day trying to implement these things that, as you say, states were had to sign on to before they were even developed? Yeah, it's hard to say. So what where we are now is in most places, the standards are just hitting the district and school level. That's why actually you've heard so much about Common Core in the last nine months or so when it was adopted by most states officially in 2010. It's because there's a long implementation timeline. And just now most people are being confronted with something they never heard about because the federal government said states adopt this now. You don't have time for debate. Where we have seen some efforts to implement primarily Kentucky and New York, where they've actually done a round of testing that's supposed to be aligned with Common Core. You've seen huge drops in the proficiency rate of students, and you've seen Common Core advocates say, look, this just shows how much higher and more rigorous these standards are. All you can really surmise, though, if you think about it, is that we know the target has changed. It didn't necessarily go up. It may have gone to the left, may have gone to the right, maybe even dropped. We just know that they're testing something that students haven't been aiming at. And so beyond that, we don't really know much about implementation, other than we also know there's, in the last nine months again, been huge pushback against Common Core. And we have certainly anecdotal evidence from, from parents. So that's, I mean, a non-scientific survey type of feedback from parents, and they are rising up against this. Uh, they they don't like what the Common Core is ushering into the classroom. So you have a, a de-emphasis of classic literature in favor of something that, 
that the Common Core calls informational text. That is, you're replacing classics with uh, things like uh, uh, government bulletins, uh, Federal Reserve, um, Federal Reserve publications, uh, dry text, EPA standards on insulation. Um, parents don't like that. It doesn't make sense. Um, and then on the, on the math side, it's ushering in kind of a, a fuzzy math approach to mathematics. Yeah, and if I could just add something. So there's been in the last few months a lot of polling now about Common Core. But most of that polling has been essentially – biased toward getting people to say they like Common Core. So most people, the polling shows very clearly, have no idea what Common Core is, although it's grown in the last year, as have the negative reactions to it. But still, most people, most parents don't know what it is. And it's not until they're given a very loaded pro-Common Core description of it that they start to say, okay, I like that. When you start to balance that, when you balance that with uh, a negative description, or basically both sides of this argument, then that changes again. But most of the polling you will have seen is based on people responding to a loaded, positive description of Common Core. Amen. Yeah, and, and from the standpoint of politicians, so what happened is the, the whole process was reversed, right? So now we're, now we're having that public debate after the fact rather than before. So, but, but, Politicians, when they signed on to this, they were signing on to the promise of the core. And what many of them did is essentially paint themselves into the corner for a year and a half, two years, three years, saying, Common Core, it's great. These standards are rigorous. You know, they're more clear. They're internationally benchmarked. They're evidence-based, none of which turned out to be true. But these politicians spent all this time talking about how great it is. They're finding it awfully hard now to reverse course and say, well, those things – were not true, and, and I really wasn't prudent in ushering my state into this experiment. All right. So what happens going forward? I know I know there's been this long sort of trail since even before No Child Left Behind, high standards, high standards, high standards. You get compa- strong comparisons across states. Is Common Core really just an extension of uh, what we were promised with No Child Left Behind, that is the promise of high standards but states being given this broad flexibility to lower standards considerably. Yeah, well, that's what they were aiming at. In fact, if you, if you read into what Common Core supporters really want and what they really need to get if they have any hope of this working is something they didn't have under No Child Left Behind. They didn't have No Child Left Behind was states were welcome to write whatever standards they wanted, define proficiency however they wanted, and to use their own tests. So what the supporters of Common Core say is, look, we need to have one set of standards so you can compare all states. You need to have one, basically one test common to multiple states with a common definition of proficiency. And then you've got to have punishments for any states that don't do well on these common tests and common standards. And where we see this really unraveling, so first it's just a general popular revolt against Common Core as people learn what it is, but we've seen a lot of concrete movement of states saying, okay, we're not going to use any common tests. You don't have the common test, you don't have the common definition of proficiency. And Common Core supporters are in real trouble here because the only entity that could make 
all states use the same standards and tests and have uniform punishments is the federal government. But they are desperate not to have people think that there's the possibility of federal control because they know that is extremely unpopular. Emmett, you said that this was uh, Common Core was essentially a top-down solution. Much of education policy of the last several years has been. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think that the really interesting thing that's going on here is there really is a, a grassroots, parents-led pushback against the Common Core and, and the related assessments. And in state after state after state, uh, the first question that governors and legislators can't answer or can't defend um, is, is the issue of what tests – are the state can use. So in signing on to the Common Core system, the, the state signed on to these tests that were developed with federal funding. And it requires the states to turn over large swaths of their responsibility, of their autonomy, sovereignty, if you will, in terms of, of what tests the, the children will take, uh, when in the calendar year they'll take it, how many days will be devoted to testing, the cost of the testing, the content of the testing, and and thus that, that'll uh, determine what children are taught and how they're taught. Well, the governors and legislators can't answer the, the concerns of the parents, uh, the, not the least of which is why did we turn over so much control outside of, of the state? You know, it doesn't... It doesn't matter uh, to them where the control went. They're just mad that it went outside the state. It doesn't matter whether it went to the federal government, to consortia of other states, to private entities, or to a combination of, of both. Okay, so for parents who are concerned about this and uh, have school-aged children, what is, what is the recourse? Well, the best thing they can do is contact their state-level legislators. They're the ones who are really making the decisions now. Uh, certainly contact your governor's office because they have a lot of sway in this. And then you've got to, you know, unfortunately, rather than just being able to control your child's education, you've got to be politically involved. Where we've seen the most uh, responsiveness is a place like Pennsylvania where people show up in uniform T-shirts saying they don't like the Common Core at hearings and things like that, where they make it very clear, viscerally, that they don't like this. That seems to be the main way that they can get these at least slowed down. So uh, in terms of schools being affected by them, the the entire range of public schools is what we're talking about. So even charter schools, that sort of thing. Yeah, charter schools have to follow this. And there are even major threats to private schools and homeschoolers because, you know, education, K through 12 education is 90 percent dominated by public schools. So the textbook market, the testing market, all those things then cater to whatever that system is doing. So the GED is now being aligned with Common Core, the SAT, the ACT, and anybody who wants to take those things is now going to be roped into it. In, in some states, like in Indiana and Louisiana, the Catholic schools, for instance, have to uh, – teach to the t Common Core because they have to take the, uh, the, the state test, um, usually because they accept vouchers. And if, if that's in the voucher law, you take a voucher and everyone has to take the state test, then that's basically dictating to, to the private schools uh, that they have to teach to the Common Core. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really important point is to remember. I mean, we want school choice. That's absolutely important 
critical. But there have been states, in particular Indiana, that said if you want a voucher, these schools have to follow our state standards and things like that. And those are dangers uh, that you want to try and avoid if you have school choice. But the impact on private schools of Common Core will go even beyond that. It seems troubling, though, that, that companies like ACT and the company that produces SAT would so willingly sign on to this. How, how does that happen? It seems like these are the companies that ultimately uh, are ones you can trust with respect to skills assessment. Well, SAT did it because a guy named David Coleman, uh, who was an architect, probably the primary architect of Common Core, is now the president of uh, was it College Board. I think you're right, uh, that runs the SATs. And the ACT... Uh, it's an interesting, as far as I can tell, and that part of what they're doing is they're trying to sell testing to states to say, look, we're going to be Common Core certified, or, or aligned, rather, pay for us to do your state tests instead of these consortia. But the other thing is, if all the curricula in every public school in the country is aimed at Common Core, then those states kind of have to be, I mean, those tests have to be aimed at Common Core to say they're assessing what you should know when you graduate from high school. Yeah, that, that's uh, um, true, and, and I should point out too the College Examination Board is a has a, a history of getting grants from, among others, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is one of the drivers of the Common Core. So they've been funding it for various projects for years, um, and and they got David or and David Coleman became president of the, of the SAT. Um, and so it, it's a it, it's a daunting um, obstacle that has to be overcome in terms of defeating the Common Core. However, I think though, as states start withdrawing from the Common Core, the the College Examination Board will be reassessing its alignment. So, what where where does that stand right now with regard to states actually and openly saying, well, we're not so sure about this? Well, several states have started to, to withdraw, uh, in particular from something called the PARC Consortium. Um, in part, it's because of costs. In part, it's because there's been so much pushback against Common Core that I think governors and, and state school boards and state legislators have found the easiest way to begin to move away from Common Core is to drop those tests because the tests aren't there at all yet, whereas the states have already invested day, you know, years and money into to implementing Common Core. So uh, I think that's where we're seeing the most withdrawal, and there are places like Alabama and Utah and, and other in Indiana that have, have left Park. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people, the observations of a lot of people is, is that in within many states this pushback against the Common Core is the most intense, most passionate movement in the state. And I, I think e- even in states like Florida, uh, the, the home of, of Jeb Bush, uh, there's tremendous pushback um, against the uh, Republican Jeb Bush-led establishment and, and against the legislature. I think that there, within the next uh, seven or eight months, we're going to have states fully withdrawn from the Common Core. And Jeb Bush has been one of the chief proponents. Is that right, Neil? Yeah, he has. Um, This is an interesting issue in that it doesn't cut along traditional partisan lines or it's not neatly conservative versus liberal. It's really you've got some sort of 
Uh, um, maybe you call them establishment conservatives who tend to like it. Uh, Jem Bush, there's the Fordham Institute among uh, think tanks that like it. Uh, on the other side, you have both national teachers unions in favor of the Common Core, although not really in favor of connecting outcomes to anything that like, teacher pay or anything that directly affects the teachers. And then on the other side, you have a lot of libertarian-oriented and, and more, you might say, traditional conservatives who don't think the federal government should be involved in education, who don't think there should be top-down standardization. They are opposed to it. And then there are kind of progressives who, who think that education isn't something that you can just box uh, into one set of standards and, or into you know, one set of tests who are also opposed to it. I think the, the, the clearest way to, to really uh, look at it is it's, it's populist versus elitist. There's those who believe that people should direct government, be in control of their own lives, um, especially when it comes to the education of their children, and those who believe that uh, we really need kind of a, an elitist, top-down effort uh, to manage people's lives. All right. We're going to leave it there. Gentlemen, Neil McCluskey, Associate Director at the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. He's also author of the book, Feds in the Classroom. Uh, and Emmett McGrordy, a senior fellow at APP Education, part of the American Principles Project. You can follow a lot of these details on our website, cato.org. The proper comparison is not between free markets and nothing. Proper comparison is between markets and government intervention, and interventions almost always get bigger over time. Cato Institute senior fellow Jeffrey Myron is director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He made his case at Cato University in July. So I want to talk about a consequentialist case for markets over government. That just says markets are imperfect, totally granted. Some are really imperfect, some are just you know, mildly imperfect. But so are interventions. It takes an incredibly sort of narrow Ivy Tower academic to think that the right comparison is between a, the theoretically pure market and the, a, the sorry, the, the real world markets and the theoretically pure intervention. Of course, all interventions, all rules, regulations, taxes, subsidies, mandates, have some negative consequences of their own. They don't work perfectly. They're enforced by imperfect people who have their own agendas in many cases. So the right question is always, not which is perfect or not. The right question is, which is less bad? Okay, we should all agree. We could all agree markets suck. Okay? Government sucks more. Okay? And that is the consequentialist case in a nutshell. Now, I haven't proven that to you yet, but that's the nature of the argument. Now, a different view along the, again, the issue of whether markets do things better than government okay, is the following. In, at least in textbook economics, you, of course, can argue that no market is really perfect. And you can construct an argument that would say okay, that, well, since it's not perfect, maybe if we did just a little teeny bit of a nudge, a small intervention in this market, it would move things in the right direction. Okay? Now, that makes some assumptions. Okay? It assumes that we have benevolent and competent policymakers who can correctly sort of create this small intervention. It ignores slippery slope, you know, it ignores unintended effects and so on. Leave that aside for the moment. Okay? For it, take as an example, sort of clean air rules. There's no doubt that some of the noxious fumes that manufacturing plants, cars, et cetera, were putting into the air, they had the potential to reduce human health. There was certainly perfectly good motivation to want to think about reducing the amount of air pollution or water pollution that was being generated before uh, the 1970s. Okay? So the standard kind of interventionist argument from economists would be, 
there's really no market that's perfect. We can always make things a little better by trying to fix those imperfections. And there's a little bit of truth, okay? There's a little teeny gem of truth, okay, to that observations. But the interventions never stay small, okay? If we were talking about a teeny little gas tax, okay, to reduce congestion on the highways, or a teeny little gas tax uh, in response to global warming, okay, or very small interventions to sort of help kids be informed about, you know, working too much under child labor laws or something, you might say, okay, it can't do much harm. As an example, think about the labeling requirements on food. Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 just said every company has to put as a label on its food and medicine what's in that bottle or can or whatever. That sounds sort of innocuous, right? I mean, how bad could that be? First of all, libertarians would argue consumers, if they care about it, they'll demand it in the marketplace, and the marketplace will provide it, but probably a lot of consumers do want to know what's in their food, and so you're just nudging companies a little bit to make sure that they put that information on the labels. They can't have done much harm, except the Pure Food and Drug Act evolved over time into the FDA and drug prohibition and a whole host of incredibly interventionist policies. It didn't stay at this teeny little minor gentle nudge of intervention. Okay? It got bigger and bigger. Okay? And that makes total sense. Why? Because any entity, individuals, firms, nonprofits, government, they all want to survive. How do you survive? Well, in many instances, you survive by getting bigger. So you expand your mission, you uh, let your, there be mission creep, and so on and so forth. Okay, so the initial in intervention, which may have been well-intentioned, which may even as a very small intervention been you know, beneficial, it's never going to stay the way it was originally intended, and that's a reason to never start on that, on, on many of those interventions in the first place. So some more examples. Okay, Civil Rights Act okay, initially said you can't discriminate in employment and other things against African Americans. Of course, it's been expanded. Okay, many times it now, for example, mandates that colleges okay, have to spend the same amount on women's sports as men's sports. Okay, so what might have seemed like a reasonable intervention initially okay, has now grown way beyond its initial purposes. The Pure Food and Drug Act we just talked about. Social Security is a good example. In 1935, the age of eligibility for Social Security was created as being 65. What was life expectancy in 1935? 63. Okay. So it was insurance against living too long, against outliving your earnings potential. Now, you can still think of plenty of reasons to object to Social Security, okay, but as originally intended, it was not an evil purpose, the idea of providing some protection to people who were old and unable to earn a living on their own, okay, was something which society might have valued, even if it would have been better to have left it to private, you know, private sources, but still it wasn't necessarily evil in its intention. But now, Social Security, because we've kept the age of, of eligibility at 65, is providing a generous retirement for many, many years, in some cases many decades, for huge fractions of the population. So the amounts of expenditure, the amounts of distortion are way larger than they were originally. So a somewhat well-intentioned, small, you know, not very distorting program has become a hugely important uh, and distorting program. Same deal with Medicare. Antitrust was initially created simply to go after sort of super big evil monopolies. There may have been some cases where it was sort of justified, okay, although even those are disputed by a lot of economists, but it's also expanded enormously to go after not just mergers that almost certainly would tend to create a monopoly situation, but also all sorts of day-to-day -day practices of companies like trying to prevent Microsoft from incorporating a spell checker into Word 
because that was going to be anti-competitive. That was the basis of the government's case against Microsoft. Okay? It sounds loony now, but that was what antitrust creeped into because they needed more stuff to do. Okay? Education, of course, has expanded sort of beyond all recognition. Lots of people, even perhaps some hardcore libertarians might say, yeah, I think if the government subsidizes, set aside how it actually does the subsidy, but it's subsidizing to make sure every kid can go to K through three elementary school. That's probably not so evil. You know, the, the potential negatives from that are not bad. Almost every kid should go to that much school and so on and so forth. But what are we doing now? We're subsidizing zillions of 20-somethings at government expense to study medieval literature in state universities, okay? What's, what's the social purpose of that? But that's where we ended up because of the bracket creep, of the mission creep uh, of government policies. Economic regulation, you get the same things. Another good example is infrastructure. So maybe it made sense for government to build the interstate highway system in the 50s. But we built it. It's there. And of course, there's some parts of it that are crawling apart and need repair. But if you listen to Obama, he will tell you that we need all this extra stimulus because we need all this infrastructure. And then you look at the projects that are being funded with transportation stimulus dollars. And there are crazy projects like high-speed rail between Tampa and St. Petersburg. There's the big dig in Boston, which consumed $15 billion and made traffic much worse for, for 20 years. There are beautification projects alongside all these highways that are just make work for unions and construction companies. So even with things which kind of makes some sense, and maybe there's a government role, they almost always expand too much. There is a large disconnect between how economists think about immigration and how the public thinks about it. That sad fact is beginning to be remedied, but we've got a long way to go. Michael Clements with the Center for Global Development detailed some of the opportunities immigration reform can deliver at the Cato Institute in July. I, uh, I don't mean to alarm you, but I just met you and I know roughly how much money you make. <laughs> Almost all of you. And not exactly, of course, but I do have a pretty good idea. And the reason I have a pretty good idea is because of a remarkable calculation that was done at the World Bank recently by uh, Branko Milanovic, economist Branko Milanovic. It's in a great book of his called uh, The Haves and the Have-Nots. So what Milanovic does is assemble for the first time uh, micro data, individual level data on the real incomes of people all over the world, most countries on Earth, stick them into a single harmonized database and ask this question. If he takes some random person from that database and he wants to predict their real income, real income, adjusted for prices across, uh, across countries, how far can he get towards a perfect prediction of that person's real income, knowing nothing else about them except what country they live in? One fact only. And the stunning, to me, fact is uh, 60%. He can predict 60% of the interpersonal variance in real living standard based only on where you live and work. So I want to let that sink in for a second, because to me, this is one of the most stunning facts about the economy or the world, period. Uh, we're talking about something important, it, your, your real living standard and all that means for your ability to realize your dreams and the health and survival of your children, et cetera, et cetera. And Milanovic's calculation doesn't just suggest that 
uh, where you live is more important than anything else about you, this number means that where you live is more important than everything else about you combined, whether you're hardworking, lazy, uh, black, white, female, male, your parents were rich, your parents were poor, hot, ugly, everything else about you <laughs> explains a lot, but not as much as your, as your, as your country of residence. So that's a, that's a remarkable situation. It's suggesting that there is an enormous uh, inequality of opportunity uh, in the world. Uh, and you can notice it in places like this. Here's the border between the US state of California and the Mexican state of Baja, California. And uh, the minimum wage on one side of that border is 57 cents an hour, and the minimum wage on the other is an order of magnitude higher. S same person doing the same thing. Another way to look at Milanovic's uh, fascinating results is to, to think for a second, well, you have the same person doing the same task in two different places. That's an arbitrage opportunity. It's a huge arbitrage opportunity. The same thing is being sold in different markets for hundreds of percent difference, often thousand uh, plus percent difference. Uh, and it's an opportunity to add value. All arbitrage opportunities are an opportunity to create economic value in the world, not take it from someone and give it to somebody else, but generate wealth. And uh, it's very common in the world to have the same person, to, to have a person who does a task for $250 a month in one place, be able to move, come to Washington, D.C., come to other richer parts of the world, and do exactly, hammer the same nail into the same board for 10 times that much. So uh, Alex mentioned this paper called uh, Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. And in that, I summarized the uh, scant, there's only about five papers about this, but uh, uh, let's say nascent economic literature on calculating what is the size of this arbitrage opportunity? How much value could be added to the world economy uh, by exploiting this opportunity? And they're all kind of fancy back of the envelope calculations. It amounts to saying, well, how many people are you going to assume can move and what's the gain to each one of them? When you add them up uh, in, uh, in sophisticated ways, you get to really big numbers uh, in the trillions. The global GDP gain to even modest increases in labor mobility rivals and exceeds the, the global economic gain from any other kind of relaxation of international economic barriers you can think of. So what I talk about in the paper is that if you add up economists' best calculations of the global gain from dropping all policy barriers to trade, so total elimination of every tariff on Earth, every quota on Earth, every licensing restriction on Earth, and then add to that the economic gain uh, estimated by Francesco Caselli and others of total elimination of every barrier, policy and otherwise, to the movement of capital. So perfectly allocate capital across the entire globe, eliminate all informational uh, asymmetry, et cetera, et cetera. Add those two together, and you can't get to more than $3 trillion a year in global gain. Compare that to a modest increase in labor mobility. And by modest, I mean take one in 20 of people now residing in what the World Bank defines as developing countries, allow them to work in richer countries, just one in 20 of them, and you get above four trillion conservatively. And larger amounts of mobility would, would result in even larger gains. So really just titanic uh, gains.
The safeguards protecting you from being railroaded by the justice system have steadily been eroded. Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's project on criminal justice, detailed at Cato University just how far the United States has gone down the road of erasing the idea of innocence until proven guilty. When it comes to uh, the American criminal justice system, uh, there's some good news and uh, there's some bad news. The good news is that if you look over your pocket constitution, which I'm sure everybody here has received, um, there's some great protections in here to guard against uh, government abuse and good protections for individual liberty. You know, no ex post facto law, no bill of attainder, uh, protections for jury trial, no unreasonable searches, no double jeopardy, and uh, due process of law. The bad news is that all of these safeguards have been under a relentless attack over the years by the government trying to water these things down. Uh, I'm sure Roger Pallon went over with you the other day about the doctrine of enumerated powers and the Tenth Amendment and how that has been eroded. The same type of erosion has happened with the provisions of our Bill of Rights. Now, one factoid uh, that you may have heard about our criminal justice system is that the United States has about 5% of the world population but we have about 25% of the world's prisoners. We have more than 200 or two and a half million people uh, behind bars. And to put that number into some type of perspective for you, it took us more than 200 years to lock up the first million, but it took us only the next 30 years to lock up the second million. So incredible acceleration of uh, prison uh, space here in the United States. During the 1990s and early 2000s, we were on average building a prison in the United States about one a week. So an incredible ex uh, expansion. As Tom mentioned, a lot of this is driven uh, by the drug war. Many drug cases, many drug prisoners uh, here in the US. And that even, the people behind bars doesn't even tell the full story because beyond the people that are actually behind the walls of the prison, there's another five million people that are under the supervision of the American criminal justice system. So when you add in all the people that are outside the prison walls but that are under probation or parole, we're talking about a total of two million behind bars and five million more people under the supervision of the criminal justice system. Two years ago, the Supreme Court issued an extraordinary order to California authorities to reduce their prison population. Now, I have to tell you that among lawyers, they know how extraordinary this order was because normally the judges just say, you know, the prison management, that's for you guys to decide. It's not something for judges to get involved in. But the conditions in California had gotten so bad. That, I mean, they're, they're operating more than twice uh, the design capacity of those facilities, just pushing more and more people into these facilities, operating well beyond their design capacity. The conditions had gotten so bad that the judges said, we have no choice, it's just so bad, we have to take steps and order the prison uh, people in California to re reduce their uh, prison population. So the American system is busier than ever, but surprisingly, uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer jury trials. Well, about 97, depends on the jurisdiction, but about 97, 98% of the cases that come into the American system are not adjudicated before juries. Uh, they are uh, resolved through a system of charge and sentence bargaining. 
Most Americans are astonished by this. You know, you know, in the abstract, you know, some cases go to trial, you know, some pay cases are plea bargained, but the percentages are overwhelming. It's 95, 97, 98, depending on the jurisdiction, are resolved not through trials. They're resolved through charge and sentence bargaining. And a lot of people are mixed up about this because if you just, you know, casually follow the news, we're kind of bombarded by the cases that do go to trial. Like recently, it was the case of George Zimmerman, right? We're hearing about this on the news almost every night. But these are the rare cases, the rare cases that go to trial. And um, the Zimmerman case is actually a good recent example of how we've lost the safeguard against double jeopardy. If you've been following the news since the acquittal, you may have heard the calls for, hey, he's acquitted in state court. The federal prosecutor should get involved now and prosecute him in the, in the federal system. And so we're awaiting right now Attorney General Eric Holder and his decision about whether charges will be brought against Zimmerman. Um, the, the legal safeguard is not there. It's like up to the discretion of the Attorney General who says he is studying the case. So that's another example of how that safeguard uh, has been weakened. The ban on unreasonable searches. Well, instead of search warrants where agents uh, traditionally have had to apply to a federal judge to get approval to get that search warrant application approved so that they can go ahead and do a search, these days FBI agents are wielding what they call national security letters. They're using these letters, which do not need the prior approval of a judge, to go and seize property and records uh, uh, from businesses. This summer, of course, we learned about the National Security Agency that is gathering phone records, email records, internet surfing activity uh, on millions of Americans. And tens of thousands of Americans, mostly minority males in our central cities, are subjected to stop and frisk searches at the whims of, of, of police officers. So I'm sorry to say that the American criminal justice system it's in very bad shape. Uh, it's badly flawed and more flawed than most people want to see or admit. Now, it's not a happy conclusion, I know, but this is information that I think you need to know. War is not an effective humanitarian tool. That may seem obvious, but as we watch events unfold in Syria, it's very important to remember. According to Doug Bandow, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, the United States has an unfortunate history of setting tripwires in countries across the globe and leaving the public nonetheless surprised at calls for intervention. He spoke at Cato University in August. You know, it's one of those issues when one thinks of a free society that isn't always obvious. What should a foreign policy be? What is a foreign policy for a free society? What is a foreign policy for a republic? And it's impossible to get away from foreign policy. Presidents like to run on domestic issues. Bill Clinton was elected. Uh, his campaign slogan was, it's the economy, stupid. You know, who cares if George W. Bush is, or H.W. Bush is a war hero and won the Iraq War? My goodness, you know, let's talk about the economy. Certainly, uh, Barack Obama, when he ran for office, his focus was domestic policy. He came in in the midst of economic crisis. He had a health care bill he wanted to pass. But what you find is it's virtually impossible. You look around the world today, we're very busy. Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Russia, China, you know, on and on it goes. And the events of 9-11 certainly demonstrated how foreign policy can come home to the United States. And if we look uh, today, you know, we're at an you know, important juncture when it comes to countries like Syria. 
and we don't know quite where this administration is going. We could find ourselves in yet another war. And I think it's a challenge for us, because in many ways, American uh, force structure, American deployments, the American military remains in many ways tied to containment. That is, we had a fairly clear policy for most of the Cold War. You know, the evil empire collapsed back in 1989, and then the question is now what? And we're still somewhat dealing with that. Uh, when the wall fell, when the Soviet Union dissolved, Colin Powell, then secretary or uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, commented, you know, I'm running out of enemies. I'm down to Fidel Castro and Kim Il-sung. And uh, while Cuba and North Korea are evil, they weren't much of a replacement for the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, Maoist China, and everything else. The question then is, what do you do in that world? What are your alliances for? What is your military for? I think that's really where we're stuck today, is still dealing with that roughly a quarter century after the wall fell. And the challenge of kind of constructing a foreign policy for a free society, I think, is you know, heightened by 9-11. You know, there was a sense of American invulnerability. The U.S. had not really been attacked at home or had war at home since 19, 1865. You know, there was Pearl Harbor. The Japanese sent some balloons over that hit the mainland. But for the most part, the U.S. didn't have the kind of war in the homeland that other countries have had until going back to the Civil War. You know, Europeans are quite used to this kind of conflict, other countries as well. And what we found in 9-11 was suddenly thousands of dead on our home, homeland. And the, the prospect of future being far worse, if you marry terrorism with weapons of mass destruction, one can imagine you know, the kind of carnage and what, what could follow. Then the question, though, is you know, does our force deployment, does our structure today actually meet this need? And what should that policy be for a democratic republic? At times, I worry you know, the discussion about foreign policy misses the fact that, yes, we want to defend ourselves, but we have to remember it is a democratic republic that we are defending. It's a free society that we have to ensure that our mode of defense for our society doesn't undercut the very values that make our society so important and so, uh, you know, such a place to live. During the Cold War, foreign policy was easy. You know, more or less from 1945 to 1989, you can argue about exactly when the Cold War started and exactly when it ended. Nevertheless, foreign policy was relatively e easy. You know, Ronald Reagan, I think, correctly referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. It certainly was evil. Tens of millions of people perished. Tens of millions of people went through the gulag. And this is a country that expanded its power into Eastern Europe, was threatening, was worrisome, at times allied with, at times you know, not quite so allied with the Maoist China. But nevertheless, you look around the world from an American standpoint, from a European standpoint, there was that sense of a central puppeteer that the US had to deal with. You had local and regional threats. Everything was tied back to a potential hegemonic threat. And foreign policy, for the most part, was focused on that. You had a set of alliances. You had forced, uh, you know, bases around the world. You had forces around the world. You had a large military, far larger military during kind of nominal peacetime that we had ever had before. Previously, we would ramp up Civil War, World War I, and then ramp down. Basically, after World War II, while the force came down from the 13 million men who were under arms to fight the, uh, the Nazis and the Japanese, we still had a much larger military than traditional in our uh, history. So the question then is when the Soviet Union disappears, when the evil empire disappears, now what do you do? And there were a lot of attempts to come up with something kind of to replace that, and we're kind of in that today. If you read some of the analyses, people talk about you know, the great dangers in the world, but quite honestly, there are dangers in the world, but none of them 
are the same as the Soviet Union with nuclear missiles, which we could imagine a nuclear exchange. None of them equate with the Red Army that could take over Western Europe. None of them equate with the Red Navy floating around the Pacific. You know, what we face today is a very different kind of world than we faced uh, during the Cold War. And it's important as we think about foreign policies to remember the costs of foreign policy. In Washington, as you know, Tom referred to the, uh, the District of Corruption, you know, this is a very incestuous place and it revolves around power. And quite frankly, if you want to be involved in the process, you know, it's very rewarding to want an expansive American role. You want to go to conferences in Europe, you don't go to conferences in Europe by suggesting the Europeans should defend themselves. I've written a lot on Korea, and the South Koreans, for some very strange reason, have not been impressed when I've suggested maybe they should spend more on their own defense. As they've told me, they have other needs to take care of. They much prefer to have us to take care of them. This is a city that kind of rewards that kind of engagement, especially if you happen to be in power. You know, imagine, compare the Secretary of State of the United States to being the foreign minister of, oh, I don't know, Italy. You know, who gets better treated? Who can wander around the world telling the rest of the world what they think and what they should do? The foreign minister of Italy, as far as I can tell, doesn't have much to do. Secretary of State is very busy wandering the world trying to bring peace and settlements and you know, instructing the rest of the world. So this is a city that kind of really emphasizes the notion that expansive foreign policy is a very good thing. But it's important to think about what the costs of foreign policy are, that that kind of an expansive foreign policy does not come cheap. The first is a military budget. I think we have to view the defense budget, or I think more accurately, the military budget is the price of your foreign policy. The worst thing you can do is have an expansive foreign policy and not have the force structure to back it up. You know, if you're going to put people into uniform, they have to have the force, they have to have the numbers, they have to have the equipment to do what you want them to do. The more you want them to do, the more you have to spend. The U.S. today spends around $700 billion on the military. You know, if you look at, compared to the rest of the world, we're something like 45% of the rest of the world. Dramatic numbers. And that is primarily because most of our military is focused on offense, that is projection of power, not defense. We demonstrated on 9-11 we weren't very good, actually, at defending the homeland. Indeed, despite the fact we had a Department of Defense, they came up with the Department of Homeland Security, which is viewed as separate from the Department of Defense. Much of what our Department of Defense does is actually defends other countries. It's not clear that, in fact, defending other countries is necessarily the same as defending the US. So your foreign policy is going to determine how much you want to spend. And I worry today much of the talk about defense budget is being driven by budget concerns, they matter, but the you want to start with foreign policy. You don't want to just you know, cut your defense budget and keep your foreign policy, because then you're out of whack and you endanger your personnel. There are a lot of close calls in American history. One was the American experiment with collectivism. Rob McDonald is associate professor of history at the United States Military Academy and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He argued that incentives matter, and the consequences of designing those incentives incorrectly is often death. He spoke at Cato University in July. You know a little bit about colonial America. You realize that um, we were really just kind of this loose band of colonies that had um, been planted on the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, it's kind of a truism that the people who, who came to America from England they came from different parts of England. They settled in different parts of America. Um, they came for different reasons. We know that uh, the people who settled in Jamestown, for example, um, they came essentially to make money. 
Uh, those people who settled in Plymouth, they came because they wanted to establish um, what, what one of their uh, rulers would describe as a city on a hill, this, this great shining example of people living a good and godly life in a new world that would be a beacon of hope um, and an example to, to all the folks on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, we know that there were people in the middle, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, um, who were sort of a, a hybrid of those two models. The old um, adage is that a, a Quaker is someone who prays for you uh, one day a week and, and prays on you the other six. Um, <laughs> wily business people, um, you know, very good at, at, at producing things. So there's a great deal of diversity in colonial America, and it's always uh, problematic to generalize. A and yet, the experiences of the settlers in Jamestown and Plymouth seem to illustrate a general principle that should be of interest um, to all of us. Uh, basically, it's that incentives matter, and that if you don't get the incentives uh, right, the results can be disastrous. Now, of course, before you have uh, Jamestown in 1607 and Plymouth in 1620, um, you have in the 1580s um, the attempted establishment of a colony um, down in Roanoke. We think of colonial America as being this kind of powdered wigged, um, apple pie scented Williamsburg sort of experience. And, and, you know, for some it was like that, especially later on into the 1700s. But in the very early years, um, it was really dicey. And nothing illustrates that more than the experience of the settlers at Roanoke. And of course, their experience is shrouded in, in mystery. We know that this uh, small group of, of settlers uh, was planted off the coast of North Carolina. We know that, um, you know, to simplify things dramatically, the ship came, it dropped them off, it waved goodbye, sailed back to England, and then it returned. And when it returned, what did it find? Basically nothing, right? The this, this settlement had vanished into thin air, and all that was left were some words carved onto a tree, Croatoan. And, you know, the big mystery is, well, what does that mean? Um, some people theorize that there was a an Indian nation nearby named Croatoan, and um, the, this is the, the, you know, the work of the people to indicate that they had gone off to live with these Indians. Um, others theorized that they were under attack by these Indians, and they were, you know, leaving this as a warning. Others uh, argue that, no, there was an island or some, you know, place that they called Croatoan to which they had moved. Um, others theorized uh, that uh, space aliens had come and beamed them up, probed them extensively. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, the Roanoke mystery, I think, begins to uh, come into some focus when you look at Jamestown, when you look at Plymouth. What happened to these people? I have a pretty good idea because it's what almost happened to the people who settled Virginia and Massachusetts. Jamestown, right? Jamestown is not the auspicious beginning of American history that people might wish to believe. Jamestown is, uh, in many respects, a death trap. Jamestown is, in many respects, a disaster. Jamestown is, in many respects, a calamity. I tell my students um, that, especially given its unequal gender distribution, depending on your preferences, it's sort of like a, an especially lame fraternity party in a swamp 
where everybody dies. <laughs> not, not everybody, but, but, but many people. Um, and the, uh, the situation was, was so dire, I, I'm all, almost at a loss for words. Um, so I'm going to rely upon the words of uh, the sadly recently late, um, but, but always great Yale historian Edmund Morgan um, from his book, American Slavery, American Freedom. Uh, generally, it's a really bad idea to try to read to an audience, just not good public speaking. But this is so compelling. You're going to love it. Um, so hold on to your seats and listen to this. Skip over the first couple of years when it was easy for Englishmen to make mistakes in the strange new world to which they had come. And look at Jamestown in the winter of 1609 to 1610. It is three planting seasons since the colony began. The settlers have fallen into an uneasy truce with the Indians, punctuated by guerrilla raids on both sides. But they have had plenty of time in which they could have grown crops. They have obtained corn from the Indians and supplies from England. They have firearms. Game abounds in the woods. And Virginia's rivers are filled with sturgeon in the summer and covered with geese and ducks in the winter. There are 500 people in the colony now. And they are starving. They scour the woods listlessly for nuts, roots, and berries. And they offer the only authentic examples of cannibalism witnessed in Virginia. One provident man chops up his wife and salts down the pieces. Others dig up graves to eat the corpses. By spring, only 60 are left alive. One final scene. In the spring of 1612, and Governor Dale is supervising the building of a fort at Henrico, near the present site of Richmond. He pauses to deal with some of his men, Englishmen who have committed a serious crime. In the words of George Percy, some he appointed to be hanged, some burned, some to be broken upon wheels, others to be staked, and some to be shot to death. The reason for such extremities was the seriousness of the crime and the need to deter others from it. Any guess what people were doing? Stealing food's a good guess, but that, that wasn't the crime. I don't think there was much to steal. Missing church, no. They had run away to live with the Indians. What, what would you do in, in, in a situation like this? Um, the, uh, the settlers in the spring of 1611 had been reinforced with more men and supplies from England. The preceding winter had not been as gruesome as the one before, thanks in part to corn obtained from the Indians. But the colony still is not growing its own corn. The governor, Lord Delaware, weakened by the winter, has returned to England for his health. His replacement, Sir Thomas Dale, reaches Jamestown in May, a time when all hands could have been used in planting. Dale finds nothing planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. And the people he finds at their daily and usual works, bowling in the streets. How do you, I mean, what do you, how do you begin to explain this? This is madness. This is suicide. I mean, what is up with Jamestown? It, it seems to make no sense. And, and yet what we know helps us to understand why this colony might have been dysfunctional. And, and I think, you know, a good historian is always looking for multiple causes. 
Um, there usually isn't just one simple answer, although I think there is one really important part of the answer. Um, but I'll save that for a minute from now. First, I should tell you a couple of things. I mean, there, there are a number of different factors that help us to understand why the people of Jamestown um, were so bad at providing for themselves, were so bad at sustaining themselves. One factor is uh, perhaps that uh, a lot of these, these settlers weren't really settlers. It's kind of faulty to give them that term. They were adventurers. Jamestown, unlike Plymouth, wasn't intended to be a permanent colony. All right? It was an enterprise of the Virginia Company um, of London. Uh, it was this, this private uh, project uh, funded by private investors. They were sending people over, um, including people who were among the investors, to come to the New World, hopefully to discover what the Spanish had discovered in the New World. What did the Fani Spanish find in, in, yeah, the America's gold? They, they hoped to come to America to find gold, to extract it, and go back to England. They wanted to get rich quick. So a very risky enterprise, um, but one that, that was not predicated upon the, the, the belief that these people would settle here permanently. The colony may have been a, a permanent colony. They didn't have plan to abandon it, but the individuals who were there envisioned that, you know, with big smiles on their faces and bags of gold, they would get back on board a ship and head back to England. So that's uh, one factor to consider. I think if you uh, believe that you're establishing something um, for the long run for yourself, you might be more likely to, uh, to set yourself up for success than if you think you're just a, a temporary visitor. Another factor to consider, because they thought that this was not going to be a, uh, a permanent situation um, for themselves as individuals, the vast majority of people who settled in Virginia were, were young guys who were single. The, the gender ratio was very uneven. It was about 85% male, about 15% female. And these guys, many of them, were very young. Um, there were a good number of men in their late teens. Uh, the majority of the uh, adventurers who were at Jamestown were in their 20s. Uh, a smaller number when were in their 30s. I'm 43, by the time you got to my age, you were sort of a, you know, part of the, 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 the geriatric class. It, it was um, an environment where the majority of the men are young and single. And I don't know about you, perhaps you uh, were once a man who was young and single. Uh, perhaps you uh, know men or new men who are young and single. Um, there's probably a reason why auto insurance companies charge young and single men more uh, than, than, than other uh, demographic groups. You know, there, there probably is this, this sense that um, you're invincible. There probably is this sense that it's all for you. You know, now I have uh, a wife, I have two kids, we have a mortgage. Uh, my actions have real consequences, not just for myself, but for other people. So perhaps that uh, had a negative impact upon the behavior of the settlers in Jamestown. There's the fact that a large number of them were children of the aristocracy. We know that the, uh, the laws of England uh, back in the day, and this would apply to America as well for, for decades, um, favored the firstborn son and inheritance. So if you were the, the second or third or fourthborn son of a member of the English gentry, you had to figure out what you were going to do with yourself. 
You weren't going to inherit the land. You weren't going to inherit the title. So you need to find some occupation, some way of, of providing yourself, some way of, of moving forward in the world. You could become an officer in the military. Uh, you could become a priest. You could uh, try to become a professor at Oxford or Cambridge. Um, but there really weren't that many socially accepted uh, options available to you. So the idea of going to Virginia and quickly making uh, your fortune, that was very appealing. Um, but when you think about uh, a, a group of folks you perhaps wouldn't want to leave uh, alone in a swamp in Virginia up to their own devices, maybe the, the spoiled sons of the elite, um, you know, maybe they're not the, the best people to send off you know, on a camping expedition. The, uh, the working class, if, if, if we could use that term, the, the sort of middling people who they brought along um, tended to be urban artisans. Remember that they expected that they were going to find gold. So they brought with them metal workers and, and, and people with related skill sets. They didn't bring with them folks from the countryside who had much experience with farming. So the, the deck might seem to be stacked against them. And then we could add a, another really kind of interesting development. Um, recent scientific work has shown that there was a drought um, in and around Jamestown um, for about five, six, or seven years, um, immediately before and after the arrival of the Jamestown colonists. And this drought uh, not only would have um, impeded the growth of crops. Now, we know it, it didn't stop the growth of crops because they were getting plenty of corn from the Indians. The Indians were, were able to grow corn, um, but it perhaps didn't um, provide them with the most ideal conditions. And, of course, they settled by the James River. And the James River, if it's not you know, fed with, with, with rainfall, would become quite brackish and, and salty. And so if you consume uh, water with too much salt in it, you know, it, it could have... Uh, pretty debilitating physical and, and mental effects. So we, I don't want to discount any of these factors, but I, I think a, a clue to the problem lies in the uh, statement of the governor, Thomas Dale. When, when he arrived, uh, he noticed that nothing was planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. And everyone is bowling in the streets. People were growing things, a small number of people were growing things in private gardens. The reason that Dale phrased it this way and the reason that Dale took note of these private gardens is because the, the regime of, 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 of agriculture, as the Virginia Company had set it up, it was a communal enterprise. The Virginia Company didn't want these people to be uh, off on their own trying to uh, profit for themselves. The Virginia Company wanted people working diligently for the good of the Virginia Company. And so it came up with this sort of centralized means of, of growing corn and, and, and other foodstuffs. There was communal land, and everybody was supposed to go out into the field. They were all supposed to contribute equally of their labor. And come harvest, they were all going to share equally of the, the bounty that was supposed to result. But what was the result? It was starvation. There was no bounty to share. And we can imagine, and I, you know, it's a shame that our records from 
the early 1600s are so fragmentary. But, but you could easily imagine how, how this sort of unfolded. Here are these English people. It gets pretty hot in Virginia, pretty muggy. They go on out into the field. They start doing their work. But gosh, you're the second-born son of an aristocrat, or you're from London. You never really spent too much time working the land. This is hard, and it's hot, and oh gosh, I just sneezed. I think I'll call in sick, right? <laughs> and, and, and people sort of get this, this idea, and people begin to, to shirk their duties. And the more people do that, the more the people who remain in the field feel as if they're being taken advantage of, feel as if they're going to be exploited. Just to make the, the numbers easy, imagine that there are 100 people out there who are supposed to be working in the fields. And at harvest time, each person is going to get 1% of the crop. Well, if half of them are, are, have called in sick and there are only 50 people out there, they're, they're doing um, double the amount of work that they should do. And they're still only gonna get 1% of the crop. The incentives are all messed up. They're all wrong. So a few people, a few smart people, they, they decide that they're going to break the rules and kind of establish, you know, lay claim to their own little plot of land. They're going to grow some corn for themselves. But it seems the majority just give up. They get drunk. They go bowling in the streets. They just sort of hang around. And they watch as they themselves and, and, and others around them starve to death. They rely on the Indians, with whom they have an uneasy relationship. Powhatan, um, you know, the chief of this powerful uh, nation uh, that surrounded Jamestown, had a good reason to keep the, 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 these new Virginians around. They, they brought um, goods from the, from the old world um, to trade, um, including weapons that would make him even more powerful. Um, so he liked having them around to trade, but they were kind of pesky. They were kind of annoying. And they were mooches. They were mooches because they became completely reliant upon the Powhatans for their food. So Jamestown's a real disaster until, until Thomas Dale decides, and he doesn't even, you know, it, it would probably take too much time uh, for it to happen anyway, but he doesn't ask permission from the Virginia company. He on his own says, this is a crisis. We, I need to intercede. I'm going to divide up the land. And I'm going to assign, you know, private plots to individuals. And I'm going to make them responsible for growing their own land, or growing their own food. And once he does, suddenly there's corn. Once he does, the starvation ceases. And soon, of course, Jamestown is going to get on its own two feet economically. They never discover the gold that they've been looking for, but they do discover that they can plant um, this, this amazing uh, crop that is almost as good as gold, tobacco, right? And tobacco becomes um, the reason for their existence. And slowly um, and, and unsurely, Virginia kind of gets uh, planted firmly into the ground. And uh, by the middle of the 1600s, the colony begins to flourish. But we could see in Jamestown what probably happened in Roanoke. The, the mystery of Roanoke um, I think is, is, is pretty easily solved. We might not know the specifics, 
but I think that's the, the basic contours of what happened. Keep up with new book releases, free ebooks, and Cato merchandise at the Cato Institute's online store. Cato sponsors receive a 35% discount on all items, including Cato Institute apparel and accessories from Land's End. Visit cato.org store today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.